Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Program. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. Over the summer, the International Energy Agency, the World Bank, and other partners released Tracking SGG7, an energy progress report. The report tracks international progress towards achieving universal energy access, improving energy efficiency, and increasing the global share of renewable energy. This report continues to have a major impact on our understanding of the progress towards these three pillars and in developing agendas to meet the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. My colleague Sarah Ladislaw caught up by phone with two people who work closely on the report, Laura Cozy of the International Energy Agency in Paris and Vivian Foster with the World Bank. They give us the perspective from the IEA and the World Bank on what defines success, where some of the toughest challenges remain, and the key tools for meeting some of the ambitious targets set out in SDG 7. Welcome, Laura and Vivian. So in 2015, the United Nations member states agreed to the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, which set out about 17 different goals to advance a host of uh, objectives that they thought would enable the world to have a more peaceful, prosperous, and sustainable future. And one of those goals was Sustainable Development Goal 7, which aims to provide affordable and reliable uh, and sustainable and modern, a lot of uh, caveats there, energy supplies to all by 2030. And over the years, the last four years, the IEA, the World Bank, WHO, IRENA, and other groups have put together an update of where we stand relative to that goal. Laura, you, you played a big role in, in this year's report. Can you just give us an overview of, of what you found and where we stand relative to that target? With pleasure. Thank you very much, Sarah. First of all, maybe uh, just one word to say how important it is uh, uh, that for the first time um, the development community has actually acknowledged that energy is so central. Um, this happened, as you mentioned, in 2015, um, and it's really a milestone because uh, for the Millennium Development Goals, there was a lot of discussion about having energy included as one of the targets, but it, it was not the case. I think things have changed um, together with the, with the Paris Agreement which in fact is also uh, one of the uh, several targets is SDG 13. Energy has been uh, increasing technology has been a very, very critical component of, of meeting uh, a prosperous and sustainable, a sustainable world. So for the past four, four years, we have been uh, tracking progress on uh, actually basically four indicators. Um, the first one is, uh, uh, is access to electricity. Uh, the second is ask, access to clean cooking, and then uh, the other two are related to uh, renewables and, and energy efficiency. In, in a one-liner, uh, there has been progress on all of the four indicators, but we are not moving fast enough. So if we want to achieve uh, electricity access for all, clean cooking for all, uh, doubling of energy efficiency and a substantial increase of renewables by 2030, which is what the target says, we are not moving fast enough. Uh, in particular, we are now tracking 840 million people without uh, access to electricity. Huge improvement compared to the 1.7 uh, billion that didn't have access to electricity in 2000, but it's shocking to think that uh, in the digital era, uh, we still have uh, a huge amount of population not having access to electricity. Uh, the good news there is that uh, Asia is making a tremendous progress, in particular India, India in seven years has electrified basically the amount of Europe, so uh, 500 million people in seven years. Huge thanks to uh, the new prime minister that put this very high on the agenda. 
We're seeing progress in other places, but sub-Saharan Africa is very much lagging behind. So we still count 570 million people in sub-Saharan Africa without access to electricity. Uh, I'll spend a couple of words on, on clean cooking. Clean cooking uh, is very often forgotten, but we still have nearly 3 billion, this number is really shocking, 3 billion people uh, that are cooking on a very primitive uh, way and forms of cooking, using um, dunk, coal, uh, charcoal, um, and this is creating problems for health, gender issues, uh, uh, and uh, a very high rate of, uh, of premature uh, deaths due to pollution of burning these uh, unsustainable fuels. Uh, the very bad news here is unlike electricity, basically this number has been stable for the past uh, several years with very, very little progress and very little policy attention. One of the big headlines, I think, that coming out of the report, looking at the projections to the goal in 2030, was that 650 million people are projected to still be left without access, uh, and nine out of 10 of them will be living in sub-Saharan Africa. Can you talk a little bit about why the challenge has been so great to, is so great to reaching the, the communities in sub-Saharan Africa? So what you're seeing in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa is, uh, is the following. Sub-Saharan Africa population, very much unlike uh, Asia, uh, is urbanizing, but it's urbanizing at, at a rate that is much slower than what you've been seeing in other places in the planet. This means that there are a lot of uh, uh, rural communities um, that are left in pockets, isolated, that are more difficult to, to be achieved. Um, so even when we account for um, deployment, increasing deployment of, uh, of solar and other decentralized solutions, and we look at uh, commitments of countries in terms of new investment policies, etc. Uh, the outlook is pretty grim, and as you said, 650 million by 2030 will still be uh, unelectrified. We uh, have done an analysis to understand what would be the cheapest option and cheapest solution to, to electrify those, uh, those currently deprived, and we find very clearly that uh, uh, there is a big, big uh, uh, change uh, in uh, in what is the least cost solution. The least cost sol solution in most of the cases, 80% of the cases, is renewables, uh, and in more than half of these this cases is, is decentralized solution. Now, many countries and governments have yet to understand that there is a huge opportunity there, and we are seeing, still seeing two different agendas being put forward, uh, a centralized versus decentralized solution. So. To, uh, to really quickly resolve the problem and meet the 2030 target, uh, governments really need to embrace uh, not a dual agenda of uh, on-grid versus off-grid, uh, but really both, especially for, for sub-Saharan Africa. One of the things uh, that we wanted to talk about was, you know, why in particular did countries like India, Myanmar, Bangladesh, and, and Kenya fare so well in terms of uh, achieving uh, their access goals? Yes, in the report, we uh, look not only at countries' electrification rates, but at the speed of the progress that they've been making. And we consider it to be very good performance if a country can electrify more than 1% of its population every year. That's really a huge effort. And it's remarkable that countries like India have been electrifying 2 to 3%, Myanmar 3%, Bangladesh 4 to 5%, and Kenya even 6 to 7%. Kenya is actually one of the fastest electrifications that we've, that we've witnessed in, in the history that we've been looking at. Uh, so that, of course, raises the question, why are these countries doing so well when others are languishing at very low levels of access? Well, our analysis suggests 
uh, that countries that are doing well uh, are often, um, first of all, are making very strong political commitments that are sustained over time. Um, secondly, they are channeling uh, adequate resources to back those political commitments. Um, and thirdly, but most interestingly, uh, they are pursuing multiple routes to electrification, uh, and they're pursuing them simultaneously. So let's look at Kenya, for example, which uh, is such an outlier. Uh, in Kenya, what we see uh, is a, a combination of a very remarkable effort uh, to increase grid electrification combined with efforts to create a good enabling environment for the private sector to come in uh, and uh, serve uh, outlying rural communities with solar home systems. The issue of grid electrification, I think, is very uh, interesting because Kenya has invested, in fact, over many years uh, with uh, donor support to expand the grid uh, into a greater part of its territory. But what Kenya was finding in common with many African countries is that putting the grid there doesn't actually guarantee that all the households nearby will connect to it. Uh, we're finding that, that the uptake of the grid uh, can be as low as 50, 60 uh, percent, uh, 70 percent in many parts of Africa. So what that suggests is that you have to do more than roll out the infrastructure. You actually have to work on what we're calling grid densification efforts, where you really, um, first of all, try and study the barriers. What is it that's preventing uh, households from hooking up? And, and in many parts of, of Africa, it's the connection charges that are very, very high, um, often you know over $100 to connect. That's really you know, multiple months of income for a family. And so it's inconceivable that they would be able to afford that. Uh, so uh, in many countries, efforts are being made to reduce connection charges, maybe to subsidize them, maybe to give country uh, households a longer period of time in which to uh, repay that, that upfront cost. Um, it's also uh, important to uh, work with, uh, with households in terms of, you know, what they actually have to do in their in, in the, within their house to, to make electricity useful, the whole wiring process, um, what they can use the electricity for, uh, do they have access to appliances that would actually convert the electricity into something useful. Uh, so this kind of more holistic, uh, customer-focused, community-oriented approach is needed uh, for the uptake of the grid infrastructure to actually follow through. And that's one of the reasons why Kenya was able to move so fast, because the grid was already there in many cases. Uh, and this, uh, these incremental efforts could be done relatively rapidly. In Bangladesh and Myanmar, a, a sort of a similar story in the sense that, um, you know, efforts were made to pursue grid electrification, but at the same time, uh, a huge effort was put into the off-grid agenda. Uh, Bangladesh with a very, uh, very early and a very successful um, solar home system program um, linked often to uh, microcredit, for which the country has been a pioneer in. Um, and uh, similarly, Myanmar also with a lot of emphasis on off-grid solar uh, and also mini-grids. Uh, so you can see there that it's, uh, it's that kind of concerted approach on multiple fronts that really yields this accelerated results for electrification. That's great. And, and is, it the, is it the flip side of the equation then that, uh, that is driving some of the reason why sub-Saharan African countries found this the goal so challenging? Laura had mentioned that, you know, it was sort of the slow pace of urbanization and then also a lack of a coherence in the approach to centralized and decentralized uh, grid access in some of those countries. From, from your perspective, what are some of the additional factors that made for some sub-Saharan African countries, it's so difficult to make progress. Right. And there are indeed many. Um, perhaps what, what I could add is that um, 
in many sub-Saharan African countries, the availability of generation capacity is remarkably low. Um, it's so low, in fact, that they uh, that if they devoted all of their electricity to to household use, they would only be able to power um, you know one light bulb per person per day for a few hours. That's the total amount of electricity available to the entire economy. So when you're in that situation, clearly, um, you know, you have other needs that you need to meet, right? The needs of, of the, the productive sector, uh, the, the, the public sector and so forth. Um, so there's in many countries, there's just a sheer shortage of electrons, uh, of generation capacity. So that's the first problem. And that's why, um, uh, you know, donors like, like the World Bank and others uh, see uh, investments in generation capacity as the beginning of an access program because you have to have electricity available to, to distribute. Um, another uh, constraint, infrastructure constraint, is the grid itself. Um, I mentioned the case of Kenya, which had expanded uh, its grid footprint. But in many African countries, if you looked at a map of the country and a map of the electricity grid, you would see uh, very starkly that they do not have anything approaching a national power grid. What they have are a few lines here and there, uh, maybe in, in, in the more densely populated areas. But there really isn't the the infrastructure backbone to transport electricity nationwide, uh, let alone the, the capillaries, the smaller uh, lines that would actually take the electricity into everyone's homes. So there's a real infrastructure deficit. I think in addition to that, uh, there are problems around um, affordability. Um, and I say affordability from multiple dimensions. One is obviously the households themselves. Um, uh, you know, very uh, large proportions of the population living on, on low incomes. Uh, electricity is... Uh, a relatively expensive commodity. Um, ironically, some of the poorest countries face some of the highest costs for electricity, um, and that further exacerbates the, the affordability challenge. Um, but the, the flip side of that is uh, if the, if the, if the uh, consumers can't afford to pay, can the government afford to subsidize? And that can also be a challenge in many African countries that have relatively small uh, tax mobilization and relatively small budgets. Uh, and as a result of, of not being able to charge customers and not, being, not receiving subsidies from the state, the utilities are often caught in the middle in a financially precarious situation, trying to um, you know, keep up with the, the imperatives to expand access, but really in a very fragile situation financially. Laura, you mentioned the renewable energy and energy efficiency targets that you're also tracking, at which progress has been made on both fronts. But I was struck by particularly... Um, the comment about uh, renewable energy making much more advancement in the electricity sector, but really being challenged in heat and transport. What were some of the recommendations and, and insights that you had on, on being able to advance the renewable energy target goal uh, within heat and transport? Study, this is uh, something that you're saying very clearly, Sarah, that now um, a lot of countries are putting forward uh, policies to uh, to ensure that uh, uh, renewable electricity uh, advances. We count more than 150 countries with some kind of policy support for uh, for electricity, for renewable electricity. It is not the case for transport. It is not the case for heat. So um, there is first and foremost uh, a, a huge policy and government role uh, to embrace uh, some some policies that would uh, really enable uh, more biofuels in uh, in uh, in transport, more uh, use of uh, renewables through electrification. So EVs that would be um, 
then powered by, by renewable electricity and similarly for heat, um, more government support. In most cases, uh, renewables are, are still a bit more expensive than the conventional sources, so in the absence of uh, a clear government uh, uh, support, is not, uh, we are not seeing the pace of, uh, of growth that we would, uh, we would be needing. Uh, I would like to add something that uh, a couple of weeks ago here at the International Energy Agency, we also tracked um, renewable deployment in the electricity sector, and we found a rather sobering news. For the first time in 20 years, uh, global capacity addition of electricity actually stalled, uh, and it's uh, at around half the level that we would need to be seeing if we want to be uh, complying with the Paris Agreement. So uh, while uh, in the SDG tracking report where we actually stop because we have complete country-by-country country data only up to 2016, we put a big accent on renewables for transport and heat. Uh, we should not forget that we should be seeing an acceleration in electricity that unfortunately in 2018 we did not, we did not see. So uh, we would also like to a bit ring the alarm bell uh, also in, in, in the electricity sector as well. So, and then what about uh, on the clean cooking fuel side of the equation? Why has that languished, uh, particularly after such a large focus several years back on advancing clean cook stoves around the world? Yes, clean cooking is indeed um, a very challenging agenda. And while I think it has, you're right that it has um, reached the consciousness of the global community, um, I wouldn't say that that has filtered through to national level policymakers mm -hmm. to the same extent. Um, and, you know, whereas electricity, if you like, is something visible, modern, high profile, glamorous, if you like, um, and something that has a very clear institutional focus, there's always a ministry in charge, there's a national utility, it, it's, it's a much more tractable a challenge and a much more attractive challenge to policymakers. Cooking, on the other hand, is something um, that often uh, the responsibility is uh, diluted. Uh, there are many actors within a country that have responsibility. You know, there's a deforestation angle um, uh, for, for fuel wood, which has the, the sort of environment people there. Uh, there's a health angle, which has the, the Ministry of Health there, but, but the Ministry of Health is usually more, more interested in, in curing than preventing. Um, then there's an energy angle, but but really it's 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 an it's an orphan it's an orphan agenda uh, in terms of institutional responsibility at the country level, and that definitely doesn't help. Uh, in addition to that, um, you know, it's uh, there are challenges at the household level uh, as well. Um, cooking is a very behavioural um, thing, uh, a very a deeply culturally ingrained thing, uh, and often it's actually very difficult to get households to switch to cleaner cook stoves because maybe the cleaner cook stove uh, doesn't actually deliver the, the, the sort of the traditional um, meal in quite the same way. Um, maybe the cook stove is really rather expensive. Uh, the, the, the ones that cook stoves that are truly clean are actually quite uh, expensive relative to household means. In fact, the, the, the cleanest cook stoves actually require access to electricity, and we've just gone through that, that issue. Um, and then there are gender-related aspects, because cooking is very much um, a woman's task in, in, in many parts of the world. And um, often, uh, if the woman doesn't have a you know, voice or agency in the household or indeed uh, control over how resources are used, uh, then that's another reason why uh, this, uh, this can be neglected. So you can see how, just how challenging it is, uh, despite um, you know, the shocking figures in terms of the numbers of, of underserved and, and, the, and the health impacts that has. Laura, you mentioned uh, the, this idea that 
uh, governments are sort of have a, a centralized and a decentralized electricity planning process. Uh, and mm. it reminded me of a criticism that we often hear that sort of a this access agenda is a distraction from attracting investment to industrialized energy sources and their and their energy needs. Is there mm. any evidence that one detracts from the other or, or do you view them as, as complementary efforts? They they must be complementary. It just doesn't make sense to have two two different agendas there. Um, I don't think that one type of investment really detracts from the other. We are not talking the, about the same type of amount of, of investment needs. Uh, and in, in many cases, we are not even talking about the same actors that actually uh, go and do the investment. So uh, I would like to say very clearly that especially for uh, for an Africa agenda, the Sub-Saharan Africa agenda, which is one that we are looking very, very closely now here at the, at the IEA, mm -hmm. and that the report focuses uh, very much upon, um, there has to be both uh, access at the household level, uh, but of course you don't go out of poverty if you don't also have an industrialization agenda, a growth agenda, uh, and a community agenda where you start electrifying um, health centers, uh, uh, community facilities like schools and so on. So. Mm -hmm. Um, this is just one metric that has to be taken into account, uh, and one cannot think that uh, uh, that this will solve the problem in itself. Mm -hmm. So it has to be certainly going hands in hands. Mm -hmm. Vivian, can we get your thoughts on that from a World Bank perspective? Certainly. Um, well, as we were saying, um, from our perspective, we would definitely agree on the complementarity of both agendas, because as we were mentioning a moment ago, in order to provide uh, grid-related access to uh, urban and peri-urban households, you need not just that last mile, that last connection, but you need the whole energy supply chain to be functioning. So you need to invest in adequate generation capacity, um, a modern transmission and distribution network. And those are precisely the, the investments uh, that uh, the productive sectors also need to see. Um, so clearly right there, there's an immediate uh, link bet between the two. Um, People uh, often forget just how much energy the productive sectors really need. Uh, in, in most countries, particularly uh, most uh, industrialized economies, the industrial uh, sector, uh, the non-residential sector, consumes the, the majority, uh, the vast majority of electricity, right? Uh, and similarly, in, in the developing world, so the needs are of the, the non-residential sector are at least as large. And they have important social implications in terms of employment, um, you know, jobs, competitiveness, uh, meeting basic needs in terms of production. Uh, so they are hugely important. And I think sometimes, you know, the access agenda has captivated uh, people's imagination, uh, but it's easy to forget that this other um, side of energy is, is equally part of the poverty reduction agenda. You know, moving from an access agenda where it's about connections, right? And you've seen a lot of success, particularly in places like India, with being able to make connections to the evolutionary scale of the amount of electricity that's being used in homes. The World Bank is moving beyond the access agenda from a connections perspective to thinking about um, higher use and penetration of energy in the households. Right. I, th I think a huge issue uh, is reliability um, of supply. So um, in many countries, having a connection is no guarantee that you have an energy supply. Um, and we've actually been doing a lot of work um, in devising uh, methodologies to measure um, access in a more comprehensive way. We have something called the multi-tier framework, which rather than saying you have access or not, it actually puts you on a ladder of zero to five. Uh, with five being 24-7 electricity of the kind that we're used to uh, in the United States. 
um, and uh, noting that there are many other steps along the way. Most of our countries are actually only at tier three. So even people who have access have access only at tier three, which means they have a serious uh, challenges in terms of reliability um, and particularly availability of power during the night hours. Uh, and also voltage fluctuations, which can be uh, really um, problematic because they actually uh, damage and destroy um, electronic equipment that households may have invested, uh, you know, precious resources in. Um, so we think it's very important. And it comes back again to two things. One is having enough generation capacity. Uh, in many countries, uh, power cuts basically reflect the fact that at the peak time, at the peak hour, there isn't enough power generation to go around. Uh, and so uh, the utility has no option but to cut people off. Uh, countries that have at least addressed that challenge often face an, an additional challenge in terms of the stability of the, of the actual grid, the actual network. Uh, if there's under maintenance, uh, assets start to age, um, there really is a risk uh, that there will be a drop uh, on the transmission or distribution system that will then uh, put uh, you know, many people into the dark. So um, it's really a challenge of uh, trying to um, modernize utilities and ensure that they have adequate uh, financial means to uh, build the infrastructure that's needed. You mentioned a success that has been experienced in India, you know, doing the really remarkable work that it takes to connect, you know, all all households for universal access. What about the 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 efforts that are needed as a build on to that to make sure that it's more modern and reliable electricity services? I mean, is that a, a is that a part and parcel of the SDG seven goal, or is that some broader theme in in the development agenda? And I think it is an excellent question, actually, because we are seeing that uh, just measuring access with, with a connection is not enough. In, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, this is data from the World Bank, uh, unreliable electricity is considered by businesses uh, the, the greatest hamper to, to the development of, of their work uh, and, and, and growth and creating prosperity for, 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 for the country. So um, certainly headline numbers in saying uh, we are electrifying villages, uh, um, it's, it's great and excellent, but more and more attention going forward for modern electricity systems, the grid is going to play a crucial role in making sure that there is quality infrastructure and quality electricity is going to be uh, equally important. Currently, with SDG 7, we are making a huge effort in, uh, in uh, finding the right indicators. And um, for the time being, we are tracking households being connected, but there is a lot of discussion about uh, including better indicators to track uh, the quality, the quality of the electricity, which is absolutely, uh, absolutely critical. Um, India has made huge, huge, uh, huge strides. It's not the only country. Indonesia has made huge strides. Several countries in, in Africa are beginning to make huge strides. Um, I would like to say that uh, attention to the grid is going to be really the, the, the next key, uh, next key element. Vivian and Laura, thank you so much. We think this is a really important report. It outlines in great detail, not only sort of, you know, as I said at the outset, the progress we've made towards some of these goals, but also um, some of the really critical steps that it'll take to be able to resolve the issues uh, that, that hinder progress going forward. So thanks very much for your time. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a look at the Energy Progress Report. You can find a link in our bio. Want to hear more Energy 360 episodes? You can find us at CSIS.org, on iTunes, or at Twitter at CSIS Energy.